It is a it is a privilege and a blessing for me to be able to service once more from the pulpit here while Eric is away. If you recall, as I've had the chance to to preach in our morning services, I've been returning to uh, the miracle passages in Matthew's uh, Matthew eight and nine. So, if you would uh, turn there with me to Matthew chapter nine to verse twenty-seven, where we'll be looking at the last two miracles in this in this section uh, of Matthew. Matthew nine verse twenty-seven. But as you as you turn there, and and before we even read the passage this morning, I want to tell you exactly what it means for you. And to do that, I'd, I'd like to just remind us of what it means whenever we pick up the Bible and, and turn to the book of Matthew and, and read it. When you read the first few chapters, you, you discover that baby Jesus is, is the offspring of King David. And then you remember the story of Moses and the Israelites as, as you read that Herod wanted to kill all of the young Judean babies, and, and God protected Jesus' family by sending them into Egypt, and then by calling them out of Egypt. And you're told by John the Baptist, the last Old Testament prophet, that everything all of the Old Testament prophets had, had looked forward to was about to happen. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you find yourself then and your struggles with, with sin and temptation reflected before you like, like a mirror as you watch Jesus fight against the temptations of Satan. And unlike the first Adam, this second Adam was not duped by the snake, but rather overcame him. And so it begins to look like this Jesus is the one who has come to crush the serpent's head. And because we are introduced to Jesus in this, this flurry of, of biblical themes, our, our interest is, is piqued as we then sit under his sermon. Chapters 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount, where we hear what Jesus' kingdom is to look like. And then what it means for you to, to continue reading chapters 8 and 9 and the 10 miracles there is that you then see what the kingdom of God is, is like. Jesus reaches ahead to the, to the final kingdom and its, its perfections and, and wholeness and forgiveness and, and healing. And he brings those things before our eyes as he, the king of this kingdom, touches the lives of individuals and, and brings them wholeness and healing, and restoration. And so what it means for you to read these things is that Jesus, through Matthew's writings, poses to you the question, do you see that Jesus, and only Jesus, is able to bring these realities and characteristics and benefits of the kingdom to you? Our text today is, is the last two of these ten miracles. They seem short and sweet, uh, but in a way they are, they're really climactic of this, of this whole section. And as much as, as Matthew uses them to, to put to us this all-important question, 
And we can state it again using Jesus' words from, from verse 28 that we'll, we'll see in a moment. Do you believe that He is able to do this? More particularly, do you believe that He is able to do this for you? So be prepared now, because as we read this infallible word, this is the question Jesus is posing to you. So hear now God's word from Matthew 9, beginning in verse 27, going to verse 34. As Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and, and spread his fame through all that district. And as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Let's pray. Gracious uh, Heavenly Father, we humbly ask that, that you would open my mouth and that you would open our ears and soften our hearts so that we might see your might and your power and your salvation for us. We ask, Lord, that as, as we exposit and seek to understand this text, you would, you would open us up so that, that we, would, we would be changed and that we would understand ourselves and our circumstances and our own hearts more deeply. We pray for these, these mighty things, Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. When you were in school and you had a history class, and you went to pick up the textbook for that class, that book for you had one job. At least that's probably how you thought about it. Now the job of that book was, was this, to tell you the plain facts about what happened without putting you to sleep too quickly. Or, and, so, and so if that book was a good one, it, it, it probably was somewhat interesting. But more importantly, if it was a good book, it told you the, the objective facts about what happened and, and gave you a timeline for those facts. Now, the reason I, I start here this morning is, is simply to illustrate for you that Matthew is a different kind of, of history. It's history, to be sure. It is infallibly true. But if, if Matthew would tell you that, that he did a good job, it's, it's not because he gave you the facts and they were interesting, it's because he gave you the facts and they were life-changing. The facts about Jesus are not the kinds of historical facts that we just might catalog away. 
Now, the, the very nature of these stories about Jesus is that they are transforming, that they cause you to respond one way or another. So our outline this morning is simple. We'll just move through the passage and I'll, I'll highlight a number of things for us. Uh, but because Matthew is not just a historian, but because he is an evangelistic historian, you'll see that, that what happens is what rises to the surface out of these, these facts is, is the question that Jesus poses to us existentially t- today. The more we understand the details of this story, I think the more we realize we actually become involved in it. The nature of the story as, as being one that is living and active just means that we will respond one way or another as, as we leave here today. So, I hope you have your text before you, perhaps a, a pen and paper ready because there are, there are a number of phrases in our, in our passage, really almost all of them that deserve some comment. And, and taken together, I, I hope they put some weight on us to, to respond to Jesus the way that he would, would call us to. So we can go ahead and, and look at this first phrase. As they were going away. That's how our text starts. And that's basically Matthew's way of saying, don't forget what just happened because, because it's related. So Jesus thus far has dealt with, with nature, uh, demons, paralysis, sickness, and so on. And of course, the climax of these, these physical things is death, which Jesus just overcame in, in the miracle before this as he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. And so now these lesser two ailments of the blind and the mute, they're not thrown in as an, as an afterthought or just, you know, a couple extra for good measure. Now what's happening is there's actually a switch in, in the emphasis from what Jesus can do to now what people think about what Jesus can do. Jesus just raised this girl from the dead and the report of this went through all that District, the people had just witnessed the climactic, ultimate act of authority. And so now comes the time when the crowd should say, Long live King Jesus. But instead, here come two blind men. And so, ironically, the most unreliable eyewitnesses are the ones who come to the right conclusion and call it out. Jesus is king. That's what the phrase son of David means. It means the promise to David that his son would would sit on his throne forever has come to fulfillment in Jesus. Now this is not just a passing mention of one of those many titles of Jesus either. Son of David is is central to to this passage. Look Look at the end of our passage. Look at verse 34. The Pharisees, they accuse him of casting out demons by the prince of demons. And so the question that comes to the forefront of this text right away is then, which kind of king is this? Is Jesus the son of David or son of the devil? We'll return to this, this debate at the end of, of our passage, but for now, let's look at another phrase. Look at how the blind men address the king. 
because they had just been watching, so to speak, the, the compassion of their caring king, they, they welled up with a confidence to address him. And when they do, it's, it's not like the formal request fit for a distant monarch. No, it's an open public cry, the kind of plea fitting for a king who is generous with his grace and mercy. And that beautiful word mercy that they, that they use here, it encapsulates all of the compassion and, and tenderness and pity that Jesus has shown us for the last two chapters. And I think it means more than, than the English definition we often give it, right? That mercy is not giving someone what they justly deserve. I think that term here is, is loaded with the covenant kindness or if you will, the, the committed kindness that God shows his people. For example, when, when you read the Psalms, right, and the author is in the pit of despair, and he, he cries out for God to remember his covenant and to help him. That, that help is, is the kind of mercy we're talking about in this passage. But look again at, at the text. Notice... The blind men don't ask for their sight. And when Jesus asks if they believe, uh, if he can do this, he doesn't ask if they believe he can heal them. He just says, do you believe I can do this? Do what? Have mercy. And so, what kind of mercy do we have here? Is, is it just a code word for the physical healing? Or is there something spiritual going on? And of course, I, I think the answer is, is yes. It's, it's both. I, I think that Matthew here is intentionally ambiguous. You see, in, in the ancient Jewish context, if you were to come across a blind person, it'd be a natural question for, for you to ask, so who sinned, this man or his parents, that, that he deserves this curse of blindness? And that's what the disciples asked Jesus in John chapter 9 when they come across a blind man. Now, it's a mistake for us, a mistake, to think that ancient people were stupid. It's just they didn't know modern science. Now, of course, it's not right to assume that, that every physical defect has some, is a consequence of some specific sin. Of, of course not. But, but the Jews were well attuned to the fact that God fills creation with meaning and significance. No amount of, of scientific discovery can push out or replace that significance. In fact, the more we discover about the aspects of creation, it's just the more places we find where God is revealing himself. So we don't have to pick between the spiritual and the physical. They are, they are interconnected. And this, of course, is why when Jesus comes back, he will restore all of creation. And during his time on earth here, what he's doing is using these miracles to point forward to that, that holistic healing. But the reason blindness in particular is, is in this text is because it's supposed to teach us about the idea of spiritual sight and spiritual blindness. It's not just some fanciful allegory. Blindness is, in the Bible, a, a physical and vivid symbol 
of the fallenness and judgment and darkness that keeps sinners from seeing Jesus. This is why Paul, in 2 Corinthians 4, he says that salvation is seeing. Salvation is seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And he also says in that passage that those who can't see Jesus can't because the devil has blinded them. And so again, I hope you can see that there's a battle of spiritual powers here happening in our text. When Jesus conquers physical blindness, it is his divine declaration that he has come to conquer darkness. He, he has come to give us eyes that through him can see the glory of God. And these are not eyes that, that we can grow ourselves. We are utterly dependent on Jesus for the merciful miracle of being able to see him and be saved. And also note here that the phrase, have mercy, just continues a pattern that we've seen in, in the last ten miracles. When the people have come to Jesus, that they don't say things like, heal me, or make me well. They say ambiguous things like, make me clean, or save me, or if you touch my daughter, she will live. These physical miracles put on outward display interconnected inner spiritual realities. So here's what that means. When we watch Jesus bring the kingdom of God into the lives of individuals, we miss the point if all we are is sympathetic. If we say, oh, you poor sick person, and then, wow, Jesus is so kind to heal that person who is far worse off than I am. See, the common denominator between us and these passages is not Jesus' kindness and our kindness. It's a, it's a popular conception of Jesus' life, that it's an example for us to be merciful or kind. And that's part of it, but it's an incomplete conception. The more basic common denominator between us and, and these passages is that these poor, needy people have the same deepest problem as we do. And we need Jesus just as much. We just are just as desperate as blind men crying out in the street, Jesus, have mercy on us. And if we, if we don't think that we're like that, then we don't understand this text and we don't understand ourselves. Now look at all of the phrases that, that come from the mouth, the mouths of these blind men. First they call him son of David. Then when they answer Jesus' question, they call him Lord. And they affirm that he is able to show the kind of mercy that only God can, can show. So Matthew here is, is intentionally showing off to us the, the spiritual sight of these blind men. They, they knew that Jesus was King, Lord, and God by faith, not by sight. So here's something else that we, we have in common with, with the blind men. 
that they came to that conclusion not because they were stunned into it by watching Jesus perform these miracles, but because through the hearing about what the Lord had done, they believed in him. They, they had that faith when they first came to him, not just after they could see. And Jesus explicitly tells them that it is a, in accordance with their faith that he gives them their physical sight. He made true on the outside what was already true on the inside. Now at the end here of, of this first miracle, I want to acknowledge that Jesus does something kind of strange, uh, something confusing. He tells them to keep it a secret. And there's a good deal of, of debate about why Jesus sometimes says things like this, but it suffices this morning, I think, just to summarize it like this, that there had to be an appropriate timing for the way in which Jesus proclaimed his identity. Because on the one hand, the religious leaders could, could come after him and execute him before the proper time. Or on the other hand, like in John chapter 6, the, the people could try and make him their king and expect him to fulfill their idea of, of a messiah. So the more famous Jesus would, be, would become, he would be more misunderstood. And so if it was not revealed in the proper time, then that would get in the way of, of, of his true messianic mission. So it's not simply that his identity was a secret. It's, it's that human publicity can give no guarantee that people would see Jesus rightly. And that's exactly what we find in the rest of our text. So now look carefully with me at, at verse 32 and verse 33. Verse 32 tells us that these two episodes are connected. That's why I'm preaching them together this morning. They are part of the same point Matthew is trying to make. As the blind men go out, the mute man comes in. And notice that verse 33 simply says, when the demon was cast out, the man spoke. So Matthew doesn't really tell us about this miracle. He just kind of tells us that it happened. That's because the point here isn't so much the miracle itself as much as the response to the miracle by the crowds and, and the Pharisees. So we'll spend the rest of our time thinking about these, these different responses. Keep in mind, again, that this is the last miracle in this section. And, and so it's sort of like you have the crowd's summary reaction to all of the miracles Jesus had just been doing. And notice, then, the profundity of, of what they say. Never was anything like this seen in Israel. Not just, I've never seen anything like this, have you? No, never seen anything like this. No, no. Nothing like this has ever happened in the history of our people. So even though they, they don't fully understand it, they are, they are hinting at the fact that, that this Jesus is greater than all of the special men of God that came before him. This is nothing like Abraham or, or Moses or Elijah or even the acts of the greatest Israelite in the Old Testament, David. But the Pharisees, they're, they're a bit more uh, analytical. They thought, well, clearly this Jesus gets his power from somewhere. But, but because he looks nothing like the Messiah they wanted, the Messiah, if you will, that they made in their own image, 
they, they attributed their pow his power to the devil rather, rather than to God. And so we return to the question then, is Jesus the son of David or of the devil? Who has it right? We're, is it the ones who are physically blind but, but spiritually sighted? Or is it those who were supposed to be spiritually sighted but were actually blind? Now, of course, you can probably answer that question pretty quickly. But hang on to it because it, it might turn out a bit more difficult for us than, than we think. The Pharisees were looking for a, a kind of uh, ubermensch, a, a man, a superman, and David's line was filled with the, with the power of Yahweh, someone who would raise up an army that looked like that faithful, conquering army from Joshua's day when they, when they first took the land, and that this son of David would once for all establish Israel as God's chosen kingdom on earth. And we have to admit that they actually weren't all wrong about that. The Messiah is a, a powerful figure. And when he comes again, it will be obvious that Jesus actually is a political figure. He is the King of Kings. And he will come with a heavenly, holy, conquering army to defeat his enemies. See, the primary thing that was wrong about this Jewish expectation for the Messiah was not their, their geopolitical or their militaristic concerns. Christians actually have the same concerns as we think about when Jesus will come back. The primary thing they missed was that God's ultimate victory could only come by the Messiah's humiliation and death. They could not see this, and so they could not make sense of Jesus' humility. The Messiah would not hang out with tax collectors and, and sinners. He wouldn't touch unclean people. So the Pharisees made the same mistake that we make when we read the Gospels. They missed that, that these unclean people were there to illustrate how desperate they really were. For example, that self-righteousness is a blindness that leads to death. And so, it's, in fact, it's, it's not that the Pharisees thought too much of Jesus, expected too much of him, it's that they expected too little. The signs they were looking for were too small, too, too simple. The Messiah didn't come wearing a general's armor as a sign of his strength over, over Rome. No, he came with the power to give life. He reverses the curse over and over and over, showing himself even to those who couldn't see him. And all of this was <clears throat> a sign to, to signal that his authority and that his, his strength crosses every natural and spiritual boundary. In other words, this king's authority extends exactly as far as the infinite reign of Yahweh himself. Pharisees could not see that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, and that he brought with him all of these benefits and realities of the kingdom in order to bring people out of darkness and, and into light, out of their sin, into obedience, out of profanity, into holiness, out of condemnation, into justification, out of death, into life, out of blindness, into sight. Do you believe that Jesus is able to do these things for you? I, I hope you can feel that the text is 
is flipping the question around on you. Maybe reading about the miracles of Jesus has gotten boring. Uh, and if that's so, it may very well be because that we read the miracles the same way that the crowds watched them. That is, in order to be amazed or, or impressed by his powers, or in order to look for signs and ask for more signs of his identity. But, but like anything that, that we marvel at, we can eventually become unimpressed. And so we actually turn upside down what the miracles are when we put the burden on Jesus to impress us with his, his spectacular powers. We can be tempted to think of Jesus' ministry like a political campaign. Sort of like his march to the cross would be like the presidential candidate starting in California and, and marching to Washington, D.C., and along the way performing tricks and miracles in order to gain the, the popular vote. But it's not like that at all. See, the Messiah, or Jesus, is, is not doing these things to be voted most likely to be Messiah. If he was, it was a failed mission. So the miracles are not acts of persuasion as though the burden of proof were on him. No, they're acts of declaration that put the burden of response on us. These miracles are not persuasive tricks to get you to listen to his preaching. No, no, they are part of his preaching. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do you see? Therefore, repent. Because he's brought with him the ability, the gift of repentance. We can only read Matthew in a way that makes sense if we recognize that these miracles put the pressure on us, not on not on Jesus. The miracles put the realities and the benefits of the kingdom right before your spiritual eyes. And the declaration they give is, is this, that Jesus is the caring king who administers all of the mercies of his kingdom to those who can see him, those who believe in him. As believers, that, that should sound like a pretty straightforward declaration. But how does that square with the clarity of your vision of Jesus? I'm not talking about the mental image you have of an ancient Palestinian. Right? Not even the blind men can see Jesus that way. How does the Lord's royal authority and omnipotent reign square with your expectations about what Jesus came to do for you? Like the Pharisees, we might expect that he has come to liberate us from only some of our bondage. We may be guilty of thinking too simply about Jesus ourselves. If, if, for example, we live in fear that his mercy can only go so far. Go and read chapters 8 and, and 9. There is no sphere or realm of reality or of personhood that Jesus cannot or does not touch. Or we may be guilty of thinking too simply about Jesus if we think that the Messiah's mercy will only go as far as we want it to. 
But the king is, is not being merciful to you by respecting your spiritual boundaries. By permitting you to cling to your favorite kinds of, of darkness. And by his work on the cross, he has shattered the gates of Hades. And he calls you out into his kingdom. It's at our own peril that we ask Jesus to bow to our own boundaries. That's asking Jesus not to compete with darkness. That's asking him to submit and respect the reign of the devil. Just like Satan did high up on that mountain. Resisting his mercy in our lives in this way is like being freed from being a prisoner of war and then and going back to voluntary bondage under your king's enemy. It'd be like the mute man asking for his demon back. Why would you want to submit to what Jesus died to rescue you from? This is the mercy that Jesus puts before you. The son of King David asks you, do you see that he is able to bring the mercies of God's kingdom to you? The miracles of Jesus put on display the, the dark, blind, hopeless condition that, that we are in, our, our inability to overcome sin or the devil, our inability to obey him when we want to. Do you see how desperate you really are? But Jesus also has, has put on display that you have no need that the king cannot care for. Do you see that he is able to do this for you? Let's pray. Our gracious and mighty and matchless King. You have suffered so much to save us from so much, Lord, and, and we ask that you forgive us for making too little of it. We pray, Lord, that you would do the mighty work of granting us the gift of seeing your glory and the gift of repentance. We ask, Lord, that you would open us up to receive your mercies. And we thank you, Lord, for the mighty mercies of your eternal kingdom. And we are humbled that you would usher them into our lives by your work on the cross. Grant us faith, Lord, to see you and to see these things. We pray this in Jesus' name.